Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. Thursday, September 22nd, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. So we in America have, I'd say, one and a half 24-hour news stations that claim their format is 24-hour news, but really their format can best be described as, can you believe the crazy shit Trump just said? Yeah, they also do hurricanes and plane crashes, but mostly it's weather disaster and can you believe the crazy shit Trump just said? You know, he does say a lot of crazy shit. There's, I don't know, 50 podcasts of this format, maybe 50,000 if you include all those with fewer than 18 listeners. Now, Fox happens not to be one of the 24-hour news stations with the Can You Believe the Crazy Shit Trump Just Said format. The format over there is more like Can You Believe the Great Bold Truth Trump Just Articulated? Oh, and also... Can you believe the crazy shit AOC just tweeted? But occasionally Fox provides programming for the Can You Believe the Crazy Shit Trump Just Said networks. Yesterday, Sean Hannity on his show hosted the former president for an entire hour. And there Trump explained storage of classified material and made this assertion. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. And there doesn't have to be a process. There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be. You're the president, you make that decision. So when you send it, it's declassified. We, I declassified everything. Everything, nobody's talking about how much he declassified. Why does no one ever mention that? Anyway, Trump's verbal ticks aside, is it true that he, like a god king, can change the classification status with his mind? It kind of is. Presidents have that right. He could be impeached over it, for instance, and there is a proper procedure to follow. When I say proper procedure in Donald Trump, did your mind immediately go to, oh, he must have followed it? In fact, he didn't. The phrase, even by thinking about it, happens not to appear in any of the verbiage detailing what the proper procedure is. But importantly, it is immaterial to the case at hand. He's not facing charges of improperly declassifying anything. The legal issue is proper storage of documents, classified, declassified, just lying around that don't belong to him, that belong to the National Archives and the government. There's a further issue of 
Did they lie to the government, he and his lawyers, or his lawyers on behalf of him, when they said, we have turned over everything with the classification markings of top secret? Doesn't matter if they were mentally declassified or not. What matters is, were they marked that way? And so, however Trump thinks about it, didn't change the writing on the page. Just like there was no quid pro quo, or there was no collaboration with the Russians, I declassified it mentally. It's entirely immaterial. As immaterial as thoughts in the ether or words wafting through the air towards the ears of Sean Hannity. I would classify it all by asking, can you believe the crazy shit Trump just said? On the show today, luckily the gist has a much more eclectic definition of news. We shall discuss in the spiel, movies, celebrity, scandal, who Harry Styles is sleeping with. And if that answer contains a double standard, does it make the affair a menage a trois? But first, Scott Galloway is NYU's Stern School of Business professor who hosts his own podcast, the Prof G Podcast, also co-hosts Pivot with Kara Swisher. There's a new book out, Adrift, America in 100 Charts. Scott joins me to talk about Biden's erasure of outstanding student debt, the price college education and the value of college education. Scott Galloway up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Scott Galloway is the host of the Prof G podcast, the co-host of the Pivot podcast. He is the author of many best-selling books including the latest Adrift America in 100 Charts. Given all of this success, it perhaps shouldn't surprise you to know that he's an expert, a professor of marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business, and what they say in his official bio as a serial entrepreneur, which can mean he's really rich or, quote-unquote, in between jobs. He's never in between (laughs) jobs. Professor Galloway, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. So, first of all, some of these charts are actually graphs. I just, I just want you to yeah, know that. I'm sure are. you do. Good. If, if, you, good. <laughs> if you were to pick two that, because hmm. I'm not going to nail you down to one, but if, mm-hmm. we, if you were to say, all right, here are two charts that show mm-hmm. us why and how America is adrift, what would they be or what underlying issues would they get at? So I, I think that many of our problems, I'll, I'll go macro and then I'll go micro. Uh, on a macro level, I think that the thing that has been the biggest force of change in our society and has either shaped or been a root cause of many of the ills we're facing, it's uh, the chart showing the link between productivity and wages. Yes. And up until 1970, there's even a website devoted to this concept, or topic, uh, up until 1970, when productivity increased, wages increased in lockstep. So everybody sort of shared, shareholders, capital, society, and workers shared in increases in their productivity. And then something very strange happened in 1970, and effectively for the last 50 years, productivity kept going up. 
our prosperity and our technology, our systems, our management have all been hugely rewarding. There's been tremendous ROI in investments in productivity. Uh, so productivity has continued to just be up and to the right, but wages went flat. And the delta between those two, the increasing delta, represents trillions of dollars in economic uh, growth. And most of it has been captured by shareholders. So I think a lot of the income inequality, the fact that young people's wealth as a percentage of GDP has been cut in half from 19% to 9%, uh, can much of it can be sort of reverse engineered to that one chart. The other chart is much more micro, and it's sort of a, a topic I'm uh, passionate about and interested in, and that is, uh, according to Pew, when you walk down the avenue that is America, uh, in the next five years, there will be two female college graduates for every one male college graduate. And I'm kind of put two concepts in one chart. And also, one in three men that you pass on the street under the age of 30 will not have had sex in the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. And people hear the term sex and their brain fires different ways. But essentially, what I think of it as is a key step to a relationship. And young men are just not attaching to other people. They're not attaching to work. They're not attaching to school. And they're not attaching to romantic partners. And I think this is an existential crisis for the U.S. because the most dangerous societies in the world all have one thing in common. And that is they produce the most dangerous person in the world. And that is a young, broke, and lonely male. I think we're producing too many of them here in the U.S. How does the disparity in college education play into that? I mean, you could argue that uh, a society that was really functional would sort its people out into the types that would benefit from a college education and the types that could have good lives in the trades. And so that second category, perhaps historically, and maybe for some fundamental reasons, correlates to maleness. So is that the problem that we are oversubscribing college to people who don't necessarily need it? Or is it something else? I would argue that in some instances, it's actually the opposite, that we're not growing freshman seats as fast as we should. Our public universities, I write off the, the privates, like the school I teach at, that has encouraged people to borrow more money uh, $3.5 billion than any other university in the world mm. and prides itself on this rejectionist culture where they stand up, we all stand up and applaud when our dean says we rejected 92% of our applicants. That's not the point of a higher education institution. We're not luxury brands. We're supposed to serve the public. So our public universities, two-thirds of kids in our nation will be educated at a public university. Their tuition is up about 1,400% over the last four, 40 years versus 200% for inflation. And it's because we've embraced this rejectionist culture where we've decided the best way to answer the question that me and my colleagues ask ourselves every day, how do I increase my compensation while reducing my accountability, is to adopt the Chanel Hermes-like positioning where we artificially constrain supply. And there's been some real reasons that it's been difficult to expand freshman seats, such as a lack of state funding. But we create new departments, new administrators. These positions never go away. Uh, they can borrow money, and because of this scarcity um, brand positioning, which makes these brands very aspirational, because of this gestalt in America that you have failed as a parent if your kid doesn't go to an elite four-year liberal arts university, it results in a transfer of wealth of a trillion and a half dollars from middle-class households to universities. So going to the debt relief package that just got passed, um, they have shrunk the tumor of student debt by 20 to 40 percent, depending on how you account for it. But tomorrow, the tumor begins growing again. That doesn't, yes. It doesn't address the underlying disease, the cancer, which has increased 
costs of college. And what I would done with some or all of that, 600 to a billion to a trillion dollars, is done a grand bargain with our public universities and said, okay, you're going to increase your freshman enrollments by 6% a year, maybe 7%. You're going to decrease costs by 2% a year. That will be done with technology and additional infrastructure investments that we, the government, will sponsor. And you will also uh, explode the number of non-traditional uh, degrees, two-year degrees in cybersecurity, one-year degrees in health tech, one-year degrees in specialty construction. We're going to be constructing nuclear power plants and installing energy-efficient HVAC all over the nation uh, and get away from this fetishization of the traditional liberal arts four-year degree. And what you would have had in 10 years was double the number of opportunities to get some sort of certification, even if it's not a traditional college certification. 50% of Germans have some sort of vocational certification. It's less than 10 in the U.S., College at half the price on an inflation-adjusted basis if you reduce prices 2% a year. And um, much more opportunities for on-ramps to the middle class. So I think an expansion in higher ed is actually where we want to go. I recognize that college isn't for everyone, but I think some type of certification should be an opportunity afforded everyone. Right. There's so much there. And I love the idea of we've shrunk the tumor, but essentially the college is still positioned on a uh, massive glowing brownfield. There's uh, your answer implicates one politics. So you talked about what we should have done is bargain and demand this or that some good ideas of the colleges. I mean, it's not a bargain because our politics isn't even up to shrinking the debt. This was done by executive fiat that probably won't withstand scrutiny, but maybe the beneficiaries of the college debt relief will become, if not whole, then $20,000 less in the debt by the time they get the money. So that's one thing. We can't execute a grand bargain if we don't even have the levers to uh, impose change. And one of the other big things is that colleges don't want this because they might say they're in the mind expansion or training or enrichment game, but I do think a lot of them are just in the signaling game. I just think maybe most of the elite ones, the amount you pay is just to be able to signal that you went to a, an elite college. I think that's right. I think that pricing is a signal. The reason when I when I was a younger man and our Grey Goose vodka in a club is I wanted to signal my worth as a mate that, okay, I'm going to spend $300 on a bottle instead of 220 on Smirnoff because it communicates to potential mates that I'm a baller. And signaling is very powerful. We're all drawn to the most expensive product because we don't have time to conduct due diligence. So when a university charges $72,000 in tuition, as NYU does, it signals quality. Look, I went to UCLA. There's always this talk, this pushback from administrators and leaders of universities that it would diminish the brand if you dramatically lower the price. When I went to UCLA, it was $400 a quarter. When I went to Berkeley for business school, my total tuition, undergrad and grad, five years undergrad, two years grad, was $7,000. Total tuition all seven years. And UCLA and Berkeley weren't exactly Joey Bag of Donuts brands. The brands were good enough to get me a job at Morgan Stanley. The brands were good enough such that I could raise tens of millions of dollars right out of business school. So this notion that somehow they're going to become these awful brands, it just doesn't hold up. And universities have morphed into this belief that our job is to identify the top 1%, the top kids from the top 1% income earning households who know someone on our board, or someone who's in the top 1% and is freakishly remarkable. Uh, is captain of the lacrosse team, builds wells in Africa, and has patent pending for some sort of pharmaceutical drug. I can, I can, I can convince. Wait, you forgot piano virtuoso. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I can, I can prove to each of us mathematically who are parents. Ninety-nine percent of our kids are not in the top one percent. 
So what higher ed is about, it's not finding the freakishly remarkable and turning them into billionaires. I think higher ed in America is about finding unremarkable people and giving them remarkable opportunities. And I think that's the gestalt we need to move back to. We need to fall back in love with the unremarkable. And I'm very worried about young men, you know, overdosing at three times the rate, uh, committing suicide at four times the rate, incarceration at 12 times the rate, uh, much more depressed. Um, 92% of mass murderers, as one chart in the book shows. Well, when you hear about a mass shooting, Mike, you know who it is before you know who it is. The guy who attacked Salman Rushdie, uh, that wasn't about the fatwa. It was about a young man, a young man living in his mother's basement with no prospects. And But here's the thing. The generosity and grace and vision of California taxpayers and, and the Regents of the University of California said, you're unremarkable, but, but you're a native son of California. And they gave me remarkable opportunities. And in my late 20s, I got my shit together. And I'm going to brag, I've paid 10 or $15 million in taxes over the last 10 years. So it's kind of worked out for everybody. You know who doesn't need college? Rich kids. They have the connections. They likely got a great education. My kid's going to come out of high school with a better education than I had coming out of UCLA. Yeah. I mean, he's, just got, he's just got an amazing education. They have the connections. Who needs college are kind of kids who show some potential, but quite frankly, are just unremarkable. I'm not saying it's a birthright. Some people just don't want to go to school. Fine. But I bet if you said to them, hey, we'll give you a one-year or two-year certification, maybe you show some aptitude for math, maybe you like computers, we'll give you a 12 to 24-month certification from Berkeley in cybersecurity, that kid gets $100,000. So here is my question. This is exactly in your area of expertise. How disruptable, kind of a yoga e phrase to use, is college as an industry? Maybe you could compare it in size to something like taxis, it seems to dwarf taxis, which was yeah. quite disruptable, or healthcare, where we're seeing a lot of disruptions. I don't know mm -hmm. how much it's helping the consumer, but it's very entrenched, but it's not like other institutions aren't entrenched. Give me your forecast on 10, 20 years, the vulnerability, everything we've talked about will result in what kind of disruptions with college as a space, as an industry. So this is this is close to my heart. I've started an ed tech company. I still maintain my affiliation with NYU, but I started a company called Section 4 that aims to offer 80% of an elite MBA course at 10% of the price and 0% of the friction. And just as retail was disrupted, just as you said, healthcare is being disrupted, transportation, uh, dating has been disrupted. We haven't seen it happen yet. I've been wrong so far. And that is, if you look at Coursera, edX, to you, these companies, their stocks have crashed. And the elite universities continue. The college applications are down across the board in the U.S. because they've gotten so expensive. I think they finally priced themselves out of the market in some instances. But the top 100 universities have never been stronger. Applications have never been higher. And across all colleges, applications are still strong. It's just that people are dropping out because they're like, I paid $70,000 for this. I'm not enjoying it. I'm not doing well. I'm just not going to finish which is the worst of all worlds, right? You take on debt and you don't, get, you don't get a degree. So to date, these institutions have proven really resilient that despite their increase in cost, despite the advent of technology, EdTech has been so far fairly underwhelming. It's been a disappointment. Where I think you'll see a change is that I do think some uh, universities, whether it's Purdue or ASU, that have fantastic leadership. And uh, I think the University of California would put in that bucket and say, we're gonna leverage technology to try and massively increase our freshman seats and provide some scale. If we, can, if we can scale Salesforce and Google 40 and 24%, we should be able to scale the University of North Carolina, you know, 8% a year. 
So I think the disruption might come under the auspices of some of the bigger brands because these brands, Mike, are just so powerful. They've been around for generations. They have so much goodwill. People give them hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. These, these institutions can raise billions. It's hard to compete with that. So I do think there'll be a market for niche-focused online certification. I think Google certificates is really interesting. I'd like to think what we're doing is interesting. And capital's flowing in. But I'd be lying if I said the brave new world of ed tech was shaping up to be anything like some of the other sectors that you referenced. I think that a phenomenon going on here is that normally disruptors would come from a class of people like maybe Elizabeth Warren, who teaches at Harvard, or right. maybe people who are stocking the Obama and Biden administration, who almost always have degrees from Ivy League schools. Yeah. So the natural disruptors, the natural people who would be- yeah. yeah, imposing change or at least putting pressure on the institutions are the biggest beneficiaries and point. defenders. Yeah. And then the other thing is culturally. So then, where does the where does the impetus for change comes from? Come from? Well, in this case, it might come from critics who are conservative. But I think it's fair to interpret a lot of their criticism as extremely bad faith, even though they're, of course, going to send their kids to Princeton. And they went to Princeton, like Ted Cruz. They are criticizing these schools. Um, in, in ways and with critiques that aren't valid and are probably anti-intellectual and harmful to society. It's and populist I, bullshit. You're exactly yes. right. And I don't see that dynamic with healthcare, taxis, uh, uh, hotels, anything else. Yeah. I mean, Peter Thiel, who offered kids $100,000 to drop out of college and start their business. If someone did a follow-up on those kids, those kids do not feel good about what happened. And by the way, the guy doing that went to Stanford undergrad and got a law degree from Stanford, you know, it seemed like it worked out pretty well for him. Yeah. And it speaks to a broader point. That's a really unfortunate thing about our society. And that is we've, we've embraced rejectionism as a strategy. And that is once I have my college degree, once I have my house, once I have my tech company, the strategy is to limit admissions. So my degree becomes more valuable yeah. to show up at architectural review boards and not, not get in the way of any new development because my house will become more valuable and also to engage in antitrust and lobbying expenditures such that I can ensure that no small company gets to emerge and I can en engage in monopoly behavior and predatory pricing and ensure no small company, any threat, either I either acquire it or I suffocate it. I perform infanticide on it. So we're not doing our job, I think, as a society and, and FTC and DOJ, unless you let you know, new companies emerge, you're just transferring money from young people to old people. And that's one of the major themes of my book. And that is America used to be the best place to get rich. It slowly morphed to be the best place to stay rich. And that is that whether it's the bailout packages from the novel coronavirus or our tax policy, our focus is the following. Keep Nana and Pop Pop rich. Uh, people over the age of 75 have seen their wealth go up 72% in the last 20 years. People under the age of 30 have seen their wealth go down 22%. So we are shuffling money from young people to old people. The greatest transfer in wealth that takes place every year is a trillion and a half dollars transfer from young people to old people in the form of Social Security, despite the fact that that generation is the wealthiest generation in the history of the planet. Our tax policy, the two biggest tax deductions are mortgage interests and capital gains. Who owns homes and stocks? Old people. Who rents and who makes all of their money from current income? Young people. 
we have made we have made and the thing is people like to fall back on it's it's a function of the economy it's a function of network effects and winner take most dynamics some of that is true but be clear these are decisions we have made as a society when we say that once you get really rich your tax rates go down that's a decision we've made when we say that okay if you make money as a waiter it gets taxed you know who really gets hurt are the workhorses and that is people who make between 200,000 and a million dollars a year they usually have to live in a I'll call it an urban leans democratic city to be a lawyer and a chiropractor played by the rules got great degrees make great livings make say 7 800,000 dollars a year by most standards killing it those people usually pay high 40s low 50s in taxes so lower and middle income people have seen their taxes either stay flat or slightly go up the people at the top point 1 have seen their taxes come way down and the people who've really gotten screwed and people don't feel sorry for them because it's like most people would kill to have these problems are the workhorses making enough money to be in the highest tax bracket and live a good life but they never really get to escape velocity because their taxes have gone up considerably and on tomorrow's show Scott returns to discuss tax policy vacation policy and Jeff Bezos policy Tune in tomorrow for more of Scott Galloway. And now the spiel. A new movie called Don't Worry, Darling premieres in theaters tomorrow, originally slated to be one of the three films that Warner Brothers has deemed worthy of an actual release for the rest of the year. But now it is expected to fail. Makes sense. Critics gave it poor reviews with a rating from Rotten Tomatoes indicating not tomato-ness, but rot. Critical consensus, a mostly muddled rehash of overly familiar themes. And there it might end. Promising film that a studio had hopes for laid low by the actual quality of the product. In fact, when you think about it, bad movie does poorly. That is kind of a just outcome. But there's not so much just about Don't Worry Darling. It's not just a movie. It's supposedly a lesson in celebrity, a cautionary tale of workplace romance, a comeuppance for a hypocritical auteur, or maybe a troubling example of double standards. Don't Worry Darling is the story of a couple in love set against the utopian backdrop that may be too perfect. And those elements also describe the story of the story of Don't Worry Darling. The original male lead in the film was to be played by Shia LaBeouf, who was fired by director Olivia Wilde. She claimed fired. She claimed he was too intense on set, and she had a no-assholes rule. LaBeouf turned the charge of assholery around on Wilde, releasing emails and video evidence showing that Wilde begged him to stay on in the process, describing female lead Florence Pugh by a cutesy moniker that implied she was causing headaches. I feel like I'm not ready to give up on this yet, and I too am heartbroken, and I want to figure this out. And, you know, I think this might be a bit of a wake-up call for Miss Flo, and I want to know if you're open to giving this a shot with me, with us. If she really commits, if she really puts her, her mind and heart into it at this point, and if you guys can make peace, and I respect your point of view, I respect hers, but if you guys can do it, what do you think? Is there hope? Is there hope? Will you let me know? Okay. And that tape set the internet aflame.
or would have if the internet weren't already a mere smoldering ember from having already been torched over the relationship between Wilde and Don't Worry Darling's new male lead, Harry Styles. It seems there was a romance between Wilde and Styles, which happens to be the name of the proposed sequel to Tango and Cash. Florence Pugh distanced herself from promoting the film. The internet was busy sifting through the black and charred husks of itself to see if it could be burned down, I don't know, a third or fourth time. And there was Olivia Wilde at the Venice Film Festival using a minder to dodge questions about all of this during the press junket. Uh, hi, Alex Rickman from The Hollywood Reporter. Um, congratulations on the film, I thought it was great, but I would also just like to, to ask about you know, the, the noise that you, that you mentioned and there's um, questions to Olivia, sorry. Question has been answered. So it's, I, it's a separate section. I, I it's think, about the no, Shia LaBeouf. And what, I, what? Think, I think this question has been answered uh, as, really? when you talk about the internet, yeah. Normally, celebrity drama over a drama filled with celebrities would be on brand and maybe even helpful to generating interest around the film, but in this case, it seems not to have happened. Because into the conflagration that is this movie entered the idea that Olivia Wilde wasn't necessarily behaving, let's say, less than admirably. She was merely behaving in a way that male directors have behaved for for years, but she is a woman she was being made to pay the price. The New York Times, writing this up, quoted Stephen Galloway, not Scott Galloway, Stephen. He's the dean of the Chapman University Dodge College of Film and Media Arts. He wrote a book about actors Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier, beautiful, adulterous, eventually married, Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier. And Galloway says of the relationship between Wilde and Styles, the self-styled Wilde child who Wilde found quite her style, quote, there's some degree of sexism in this. Male directors have done this for decades and gotten away with it. A female director does it and it explodes. That's unfair. On the other hand, he went on to say, what she did is wrong, just as it was wrong for all the male directors to behave like male chauvinist pigs. Part of me feels bad for her being judged by a different standard. Part of me says there is a modern standard which we should be upholding. I think that's well said. I agree with where the professor landed. Olivia Wilde, talking to a sympathetic Stephen Colbert last night, cited the idea of the double standard. I think what's funny is like, I, I don't feel like my male directing colleagues are answering questions about their cast. I would agree with you, okay? <laughs> Colbert added the historical context. But proverbially, male directors are absolute monsters. <laughs> and even if every rumor of your movie were true, it would be pretty light fare compared to Alfred Hitchcock. Thank you, thank you. Know, you. Or, or any thank of the great you. directors out there Truly. that we admire so much. Yes, and it's I don't really think, important. I don't think that a male director would be, no. be, would be rumored. I wouldn't even have these questions no, because wouldn't. this wouldn't be swirling around No, people film. would actually be talking about the movie itself. So Wilde is citing the idea of the double standard, but I say we need to examine this. Let's try to articulate what the double standard is is present tense. It's not male directors can sleep with their stars and women directors can't, as Professor Galloway said, Stephen Nutt Scott. It's more like in one era, a past era, male directors engaged in workplace behavior we now look down on, or in some cases have actual HR rules against. We had a standard, directors could sleep with their stars, and now we have a standard, directors shouldn't. It isn't men can do this, but women can't. And yes, who gets punished by the standard? The new entrants into the field of directors, the entrants who were held out for so long, women. 
but they only get punished if they engaged in this behavior. If you want to make the standard perfectly parallel, you might say something like, well, for the first 10,000 films made in Hollywood, the directors could sleep with stars, and now for the next few thousand, they can't. Oh, also, women were shut out of directing the first 10,000. And also, if there really were a double standard, if men were allowed, whatever, but women were not allowed, whatever, then what to make of the woman, Florence Pugh, who seems to have disapproved of the work environment she was part of? She was the female star who saw her co-star get the attention and favoritism of the director that the co-star was sleeping with. Once, like anyone who dared steal focus from Brigitte Bardot or Catherine Deneuve or Jane Fonda in a Roger Vadim film, that person, that character, the one who what didn't have the affections of the director, she just have to shut up and take it. But now we understand and are sympathetic to her objections. If the so-called double standard were evened out to wild satisfaction, don't we punish Pew? Don't we punish her point of view? Don't we engage in more sexism? In reality, Wild and her film aren't really being punished by a double standard. They are the victims of A, a not very well-made film, B, documentary evidence strongly implying that Wilde was dishonest about her dismissal of Shia LaBeouf, and C, and this is a huge one, maybe the biggest one, or even the dispositive one, the fact that Harry Styles fans are nuts. The term parasocial relationship dates back 70 years. But you see it all the time now on social media, and it is apt. Parasocial meant you saw someone on a screen, back then only TV or a movie screen, and you thought you had a relationship. Para, prefix for closely resembling. In 1956, when coined, parasocial was contrasted with orthosocial, straight, proper, right. You know, a real relationship between two people who know of each other's existence. But then, Back then, parasocial relationships stayed in the minds of the fans. But now fans have means to communicate to each other, to get their message out to the stars, to the studio marketing departments, to the message boards. And if there's an appetite to tear apart any woman who dares snog styles, there will be media who cater to that hunger and exacerbate it. I found so much content seeking to paint Olivia Wilde as a horrible person. Here's one called 10 Celebrities Who Tried to Warn Us About Olivia Wilde. First was Candace Owens. It is too stupid to really get into. Candace Owens tweeted something nasty about Harry Styles' Vogue photo shoot and masculinity. He wore a dress. Fine. The number one celebrity who tried to warn us about Wilde, it was her ex-husband, Jason Sudeikis. Like most celebrity couples that live in the public eye, their divorce is very messy. He tried to warn us? No, there's no us in there. He wasn't in a relationship with us. He was in a relationship with her and then didn't want to be. Celebrity culture is demanding and really unfair. Shutting out women from directing roles, that's also unfair for many, many decades, still goes on. Wanting to punish a movie because you think you have some insight into the goodness or badness of the director, that's generally unfair. But a poorly reviewed movie with a troubled reputation tanking at the box office, that is not a terrible injustice. And a double standard, while definitionally unfair, is not the phenomenon at play and is not what should most worry the financial backers of Don't Worry Darling. And that's it for today's show. 
Corey Wara is the GIST producer. How does he do it? With his mind. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. She could easily become, say, in-house counsel or CFO if she just changes the HR designation. Again, with her mind. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Ooperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.